Good morning, Dr. History. Good morning, Zeb. How you doing out there? Well, just slip sliding away. <laughs> That's why I decided not to drive out there today. You know, I've had it. When are we going to hear a forecast, like I said a few minutes ago, of maybe sunny and 70 and, boy, the good old days. Remember those? Uh, yeah, it's been a while. It has. It's been a while. What's cooking in your world? Well, I just want to say, uh, make a comment. Uh, one of our listeners, he's uh, uh, called in a number or sent me messages a few times. Uh, Joe Smith, he listened to our Bonnie and Clyde uh, episode, and he actually sent me a map that shows that Bonnie and Clyde actually ranged clear from Minnesota, clear down to Houston. And I didn't realize they covered that big of a territory in their uh, crime sprees that they were on. Well, I wasn't sure about the Minnesota or the upper Great Lakes region, but I definitely knew that they were all the way down into Texas. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't realize. I figured they were down that far, but not that high far north. Yeah. of the Minnesota Great Lakes area. So, anyway, thanks, Joe, for the information. So... Today's Zeb uh, is going to be part three of our Trappers and Trailblazers, and uh, so this is probably the last one I do on this for a while, but uh, I want to talk a little bit about Jim Beckworth. I know who you mean. Yeah, you've heard of him. I yep. know we've mentioned him. So he was born around 1800 into slavery. His father was a Virginia aristocrat, and his mother was a mixed-blood slave, so basically he was an African-American at the age of 10, they moved to St. Louis. He only had four years of education, uh, but he was a pretty smart guy. He had an aptitude for languages, and he became fluent in English and French and could also understand Spanish. So he was uh, quite an intelligent guy. Mm-hmm. But uh, Beckworth's father set him up uh, with a blacksmith apprentice, but, uh, you know, that really wasn't going to work out for him. He... Uh, answered the call of William Ashley in 1822 to become part of the Rocky Mountain Fur Company. You know, let me ask you a question right there. Uh, for many of these people like Beckworth and others that maybe had never done this before, never been a trapper or an explorer, uh, who put all the money up and what was the enticement? Well, I think the enticement was, number one, I think was adventure and money and Whoever put it up would be the leader, for example, with Ashley, William Ashley. Uh, it was his company, the Rocky Mountain Fur Company. Mm-hmm. So they put up the, the money and the, whatever they needed to, to get those men out to the West. But uh, So Beckworth actually was a key part of the Rocky Mountain Fur Company back in 1824, 25. They uh, went, uh, you know, they did very well. Um, Beckworth actually uh, claimed that... Uh, he and his son, his son, evidently, he, as he got older, he had a son with him, uh, that they actually got in a fight with uh, some Crow Indians, which is ironic because eventually he became part of the Crow tribe. Hmm. But uh, another incident, Beckworth was guarding a man who had been mauled by a grizzly bear along the trail. When the bear came back to attack, Beckworth, along with William Ashley, brought this big old grizzly down with a couple of uh, well-placed shots. But that year... It was very successful. They brought back $50,000 in furs, which, of course, would have been worth millions, but uh, in today's terms. Mm -hmm. Uh, So over the next few years, Beckworth spent time, as I said, among the Crow tribe. 
He became fluent in their language. He participated in war parties, usually against the rival Blackfeet, and he was even uh, deemed an honorary chief. Um, anyway, he, he was quite an amazing man. Um, but, like I say, he became a war chief of the Crow tribe. Uh, he boasted forever that uh, of the honors he won in battle uh, with his adopted people. And once, according to his own account, when he engaged in lone combat with a number of enemy warriors, probably Blackfeet, he was reinforced by, by a party of the Crows. But here's what he said, quote, I despoiled my victim of his gun, lance, war club, bow, and quiver of arrows. Now I was the greatest man in the party, for I had killed the first warrior. We painted our faces black and rode back to the village bearing 11 scalps. You know, uh, as far as the weaponry back in those days, how dependable was it, uh, those old flintlock rifles, etc.? Well, you've heard of the old saying, a flash in the pan. Yeah. Or, you know, or if the powder gets wet. Yeah, they weren't always totally 100% successful. But, uh, you know, Beckworth goes on, he says, quote, I fought in their behalf against the most relentless enemies of the white man. If I chose to become an Indian while living among them, it concerned no person but myself. And by doing so, I saved more life and property for the white man than a whole regiment of United States regulars could have done at the time. Hmm. So he thought fairly highly of himself, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) But, but, you know, mountain men, they sometimes talk a little big and... They, a lot of times they lived that way, too. They they were a big presence. Well, did he and keep they, a diary, or did he keep some kind of a uh, journal or whatever? You know, a lot of them did, and I don't... Uh, what, I'm, what I'm looking at here looks like more quotes from... Could have been a journal of some kind, or letters, or, or something. But as I mentioned, you know, the mountain men, they were distinct, you know. Uh, in fact, a lot of contemporary descriptions of them were, you know, they're kind of romanticized or they're not really accurate. But there's an account given by, uh, of a typical mountain man contributed by a guy by the name of Rufus Sage. Okay? And he himself was a mountain trapper during the 1830s. And I'm just going to read what he, how he describes it. Okay? So this is according to Rufus Sage, whom I've, <clears throat> I've never heard of. <laughs> it says... His skin, from constant exposure, assumes a hue almost as dark as that of the Aborigine, and his features and physical structure attain a rough and hardy cask. Cask. His hair, through inattention, becomes long, coarse, and bushy, mm-hmm. and loosely dangles upon his shoulders. His head is surmounted by a low-crowned wool hat or a rude substitute of his own manufacture. His clothes are of buckskin gaily fringed at the seams with strings of the same material, cut and made in fashion peculiar to himself and associates. The deer and buffalo furnish him the required covering for his feet, which he fabricates at the impulse of want. His waist is encircled with a belt of leather, holding encased his butcher knife and pistols, while from his neck is suspended a bullet pouch securely fastened to the belt in front, and beneath the right arm hangs a powder horn traversely from his shoulder, behind which, upon the strap attached to it, are affixed his bullet-molded ball, screw, wiper, and all, with a gun stick, which is a homemade ramrod, made of some hardwood, and a good rifle placed in his hands, carrying from 35 balls to the pound, 
the reader will have believe, before him a correct likeness of a genuine mountaineer when fully equipped. Holy smokes. Uh, I mean, when they, a, when they get up and get dressed in the morning, it must have taken three hours. Well, I, I, I don't know that they took much off <laughs> when, when they went to bed. <laughs> you know, you had to be able to be up and, up and moving in a hurry, I think. <laughs> but, and that's according to this guy named Rufus Sage. Now, he goes on, and I, again, I, I wish I knew more about this guy. I need to find out uh, a little more about him. But, uh, you know, he says that for an entire winter, uh, he, they dressed pretty much like uh, uh, John Coulter had, and he usually carried several knives, a pipe, tobacco, and perhaps some reading material for the winter. And he suggests that a lot of times they had a Bible, uh, a book by Shakespeare, uh, books of poetry, and so they... And I mentioned this before. They were most of them were well read. There's only about thirteen percent that were illiterate. Hmm. So, and a lot of them did keep journals. So, but they carried spare locks and flints, uh, twenty five pounds of powder, a hundred pounds of lead. Uh, you know, they usually had forty to sixty caliber rifles, and usually they wanted the Hawken brothers of St. Louis. They liked the Hawken rifle, right? Because it was said to be accurate at up to 200 yards, and it was powerful enough to knock down a buffalo or a grizzly bear or, uh, you know, whatever. You know, so, one of the questions I would have as you're going through the litany of things that they took with them, you mentioned the Bible. And I found it interesting because a lot of the Bibles or most of the Bibles at that day and age, weren't they the big, cumbersome Bibles? Or did they find somebody to print a smaller version? You know, that's a good question. And I, you know, you, you hear of the stories or see uh, people that have a family Bible that weighs 20 pounds. Yeah. Yep. And uh, I'm thinking, no, I, I tried to picture this in my mind. It, they had to have had smaller Bibles, uh, small enough to fit in a, you know, in their packs or whatever. So, but, you know, you know, except for a little flour or coffee, tea, and salt, the mountain men, they didn't carry any food. They lived exclusively off the land. Uh, they might gather some wild plums and nut, nuts. Uh, sometimes they'd just eat whatever they had. If they were getting hungry, they might eat roots or even bark. Or so they might even. If if you saw if you saw a real skinny uh, man in the wilderness, you knew he was a very poor shot. He was a very poor shot. Yes, and more than likely uh, he was headed to some place where civilization was. <laughs> but uh, anyway, you know, when they were cooking, though, they'd throw in in the buffalo in the pot. They'd throw in buffalo or deer or elk, antelope, uh, even a bobcat, a rabbit, a wolf, uh, even a hawk would do. Uh, now, unfortunately, uh, because of their diet uh, of, of fat meat, uh, they quite often had a form of dysentery that uh, was kind of a frequent uh, and could be a fatal complaint among the mountain men. Hmm. So, uh, you know, they did, they weren't getting fruits and vegetables, uh, you know, when they were out there in the wintertime, just, just meat. Yeah, so, yeah. But next to his guns, the most important possession the mountain man had were four to six beaver traps, and they usually cost about twelve to sixteen dollars piece. Uh, and they were put to work during the two trapping seasons. Now, the first was in the fall after the summer fur had become prime, and it lasted until the ice and the snow made travel and trapping impossible. And the second time began in the spring when the ice began to break up and continued until the quality of the fur deteriorated because of the warm weather. 
that at both seasons, uh, the water in which the trapper worked was freezing cold water. Oh, yeah. And one thing you never think about, or probably most people don't, is rheumatism brought on by this being in this cold water, and that was a pretty common occupational uh, ailment. You know, and the thing that really scares me about thinking about being a mountain man and taking off if you're by yourself or even with another guy uh, is if you broke that gun, if you broke that Hawken and you're without any defense or any protection and you're what, uh, thousands of miles away from getting a replacement? Woo! Yeah. Well, and the other thing is, like I said, they're in this uh, ice-cold water. What if you fall down and you yeah. go completely under, you get out, and all of a sudden the storm hits? You know, I think a lot of them knew how to start a fire fairly quickly. But still, you know, if the temperature dropped rather quickly, you might be done. Yeah, frozen, absolutely. You know? But the, the trapping procedure was, you know, they'd wade into this uh, pond or swamp. They'd set a trap, and they'd put it under the water. Uh, and when the animal was trapped, they would it would hold them underwater, and they would drown. Now, some of the beaver actually would gnaw off their foot uh, to escape, hmm. but the trap was usually uh, maybe some kind of a scent or a piece of greenery, but uh, they'd check their traps every few days, and can you imagine hauling a 40-pound beaver out of the mud and the cold water day after day? I mean, these were big um, big animals, forty pounds. What was the and worth? What was the net worth when they traded those pelts? What did they get on a per beaver basis? Do you know? Um, you know, I'm looking through here and I cannot remember. Is but I believe, as I recall, it's so much uh, per pound. I see that they that they got, and I, I might find it here as we're going along. Uh, but anyway, <clears throat> you know. Uh, a lot of times during the winter time, they'd uh, have to settle in and uh, just have a crude camp. Uh, now, this Rufus Sage, again, I need to find out this guy. Here's what he said uh, during the winter time when they weren't trapping. He said, quote, It is usually located in some spot sheltered by hills or rocks for the double purpose of securing the full warmth of the sun's rays and screening it from the notice of strolling Indians that may happen in its vicinity. Within a convenient proximity to its stands, uh, to its stands, some grove from which an abundance of dry fuel is procurable when needed, and equally close to the ripplings of a watercourse, salute the ear with their music. Hmm. Don't you like the language there, Zeb? You, you know, and some of these old uh, books, and like you're talking about, and even some of the older movies, uh, they depicted some of that colorful language, because that's really how those people talked back in those days. It, it was. You know, he goes on, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he talks about uh, his shanty faces a huge fire. Uh, he had uh, uh, the... the, fr- the uh, beaver pelts that he had to dress out and he had a framework and he stretched the frames uh, the skins over the frames and they'd use a stone or a scraper uh, and some of it they made their own clothing that they maybe weren't going to you know take to sell Yeah. but uh, a lot of times they would actually have uh, an Indian girl in camp to perform some of the camp chores uh, and a lot of the uh, times the tribesmen would actually sell uh, an Indian girl to at the rendezvous, and it might be the 
price might be as little as a jug of whiskey or a horse, but one mountain man claimed to have paid $2,000 in beaver skins for a chief's daughter. Wow. And as I've mentioned before, uh, there was a number of times when these Indian women would uh, actually uh, follow their husbands into, like, St. Louis and different places and, and became very wealthy uh, in some of these towns. How were they accepted, though? Not very well. Not very well. One one uh, guy named George Catlin, he described, uh, he said, uh, quote, their women are beautiful and modest, and if either Indian or white man wishes to marry the most beautiful girl in the tribe, she is valued only equal, perhaps, to two horses, a gun with powder, and a ball for years. Uh, but, uh, you know, even then, you know, out in the wintertime, uh, you know, it, it can be rough out there, but... Uh, you know, some men achieved a hero status uh, for their exploits, like uh, Bill Sublett. Uh, he worked uh, from being an ordinary trapper uh, to a partner in the Rocky Mountain Fur Company, and he became a wealthy man, mm-hmm. very wealthy. Kit Carson uh, later, Carson made his name in the West as a freelance Indian fighter and the only brigadier general in the United States Army who could write nothing beyond his own name and could read nothing at all. Well, what about Bill Sublett, though? Go back to him. Is he the same Sublett that uh, our area of Sublett was named yes. after? Uh-huh. Yeah, oh, William or Bill Sublett and his brother. Oh, gosh, I can't remember his brother's name. They were both uh, uh, with the Rocky Mountain Fur Company. I see. With, uh, started out with Ashley. But, you know, there were some kind of what we call misfits among them. There was a guy whose family sent him west to spared themselves the embarrassment of his, uh, quote, drunkenness and recklessness, and uh, which that, that didn't work out. Uh, there was a Cherokee uh, guy named Edward Rose, and he was one of Ashley's original crew. He turned up in a Crow village. Uh, he enjoyed the rank of chief. Uh, and then there was a guy named Old Bill Williams. He was a religious fanatic who lived by choice completely alone in the wilderness, and he only came out from time to time with what they called fabulous loads of prime furs from secret trapping grounds. You know, they had a secret place. They didn't just go tell everybody yeah. about it. Yeah. But Williams kind of gained a bad reputation among the mountain men. Uh, he was believed to have maybe even practiced cannibalism. Oh, boy. But we don't know that. But uh, there was actually, you know, when you think about going in there with nothing, there was actually a manual. It was called the Trapper's Guide a manual of instructions, and it says, for capturing all kinds of fur-bearing animals and curing their skins with observations on the fur trade, hints on life in the woods, and uh, and relatives of trapping and hunting excursions. That's the title Holy. of this Trapper's Guide. I like those real concise titles. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, boy. But, you know... Even with, uh, you know, I mean, it was a lethal occupation. I mean, they died of drowning, injuries, dysentery, smallpox, tetanus, uh, occasional gunshot wounds. Uh, they fell off mountains. They were bitten by rattlesnakes, mauled by grizzly bears like old Hugh Glass. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was a dangerous occupation. And, you know, there's one thing, and we've only got a couple of minutes left here, but I want to throw this at you. What would you think would be the number one thing that possibly you, but I know I'd be concerned about, and that's having a bad tooth? (laughs) You know, (laughs) I hadn't thought of that, but, oh, boy, that could be a miserable situation. And, and, you know, if it it abscessed or one thing or another, you could 
get infections yep. and die from yep. it, you know. But uh, but it was it was a fair, fairly uh, lucrative occupation. I mean, they could make some good money, uh, you know. Uh, but then again, when they went to the oh, here it is. Uh, Trapper sold beaver pelts at Rendezvous for two to four dollars a pound, uh-huh. and they would later be sold in St. Louis for six to eight dollars. Wow. That, according to the inflationary figure of today, that's a lot of money. It is. It is. And, uh, you know, they would go to rendezvous and get this money, and unfortunately, by the time the rendezvous was over, a lot of times they didn't have any money left. They had enough to re-outfit for the next winter, and that was about it. I can just imagine you 175 years ago putting on your buckskins and a coonskin cap and hitting the South Hills. Uh, on my snowmobile? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Oh, I'm out of time, but I really enjoyed that. You know, we ought to do another series on these mountain men as far as what they ate and how they took care of medical emergencies and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um... Well, uh, yeah, this is part three of our uh, series on the trappers and the trailblazers. And so maybe down the roadways, we'll uh, do another series on them. All right. Well, I hope the roads are better next week, and I certainly appreciate it.